That's good, ain't it? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Man, thank you for being here. Thank you, band. Didn't even miss our worship pastor, did we? I'll let Will know it, too. <clears throat> Great job, ladies. Thank you so much. And Chris, man, we appreciate you guys and everything that you do. And the unsung heroes in the back as well that are uh, working on the computers and, and typing away and, and getting everything queued up for us. And so, man, I am so very thankful for the season of life uh, that we are in as a church. Man, I am thankful for you. I am thankful for what God is going to continue to do. COVID is... On its way out, prayerfully, right? It'll continue on its way out. Uh, and, and we're beginning to, to get back to normal, Con- beginning to, which, what is normal for Lindsay Lane North? We, we don't know that yet, I guess. Um, we'll find out soon enough. Uh, but we've been in a series uh, that, that we've been talking about the promises of God. We're making a, tra- a transition this week. There is something that I am very, very excited about. I say, I say the word excited a lot, don't I? I am excited about this. Uh, in, in just a few short weeks, we've got three Sundays, this Sunday and two other, before we find ourselves at the first Easter service that North by itself has ever had. It'll be the first Easter service that I've ever preached. We've been here for two years and we've only had one Easter, right? And, and so uh, if you remember last year was when everything was shut down and we did the drive-in service. I know many of you were there uh, at the main campus there in Athens while we, uh, we came and I preached a seven-minute Easter sermon. Okay, I may have fudged it just a little bit, but y'all know me, right? And I may have, may have fudged it just a little bit. But we preached in, in, in concert with, uh, with Heath and Andy John and Brother Dusty as well. And so uh, I'm excited about Easter that's coming up. We, this shouldn't be this way, but we know that it is. You know, you're like you have things that you know to be true and things that should be true, right? I know, we know to be true that there are some that come to church Two days of the year, right? We, they come Easter and they come New Year's or Christmas. One of those, one of those two. So give yourself a hand. You are, oh, I'm, I'm, okay, I won't give, never mind. Don't give yourself a hand that you're here, right? On more than those two Sundays. And so, um, but we are leading up to that. I want to prepare us as a church toward Easter. We've got big plans in store that you're hearing this for the first time. We haven't put this out yet. Um, we will have three services on Easter. We're going to have one on Saturday evening, uh, which I would invite a lot of our members and regular churchgoers. I would love for you to attend that at 630 on Saturday evening. Um, we actually have an Easter egg hunt. Saturday morning, which will coincide with opening day of baseball. So my boys and my kids have to be there anyway for pictures and whatnot. So uh, we will be actually able, as soon as our Easter... Um our Easter egg hunt's over. Community Easter egg hunt, we'll be able to go right into ball. So hopefully we'll have plenty show up for that. Y'all have seen that we're taking up Easter eggs, field Easter eggs. By the way, not with chocolate. All right? That becomes more of a penalty than a like privilege to pick those up in, when they've been sitting in the sun for a little while. Unmeltable chocolate, fill those and, return, and put those in. I know the kids have got some ice cream parties that are on the line and we've got home groups that are already doing that and finding cheap eggs and all those sorts of things. So make sure that we're doing that because that is going to be a huge community thrust right there before Easter. And so we have our Sunday mornings, uh, our Sunday, our Sunday, excuse me, Saturday afternoon 
and then our Sunday morning services at the regular time, 9 and 10.30. But I want to prepare us. Now, hopefully, well beyond Easter. I also don't believe you need to, you need to hinge your entire church calendar on those two high days either. Uh, because I, I pray that we are doing some of these things continuously, but especially as we lead up to Easter, that we do so with intentionality, praying that God would do an incredible work. The title of our series for the next three weeks leading to Easter is Synced. Synced, that we are agreeing with God in prayer. That we are walking in beat step with him. We've got big plans and we want to see God move in a powerful way. And so there's some thoughts. When we talk about prayer, there are some thoughts that I just think as it relates to prayer. And this goes beyond Easter. This goes to our whole life. But listen to these thoughts. And I've got some thoughts of guys that are a lot smarter than me to back these up, okay? Here's my first thought. Number one, prayer is essential to seeing the power of God in our life. Prayer is essential for doing that. Now, this isn't on the screen. These are, this is extra here. Um, it's not on your notes, but you can write those down. Prayer is essential to seeing the power of God at work in our life. Vance Pittman says this. When we work, we work. But when we pray... God works. There is a mentality that we need to busy ourselves. And we do. There's, there's no room for laziness in ministry. And I'm not talking about vocational ministry. I'm talking about being a child of God. There's no room for laziness in our calling that God's place in our life. But when we work, we work. But when we pray, we give God the opportunity to work on our behalf. Listen to what D.L. Moody said. Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling Figure. And this goes beyond the two great awakenings that our country has experienced. This goes globally and throughout history. Every single fantastic, incredible move of God began with prayer. Think about all the way back to the original revival. Pentecost. What were the people doing? All 120, the followers of Jesus were gathered in a room and they were praying and in one accord. They were unified in prayer and God moved. Listen to what Billy Sunday said. I like this. If you are a stranger, this was an evangelist to Billy Graham, so an evangelist to an evangelist. All right, if you are a stranger to prayer, you are a stranger to the greatest source of power known to human beings. If you are failing to pray, you are setting yourself up for failure. Does that make sense? And so prayer unlocks, prayer is, it allows us, is essential to seeing the power of God in our life. Number two, prayer is essential for everything we do in Christian life. Martin Luther says this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. In the same way that our body, body phys physically respirates and we breathe, so is prayer the life function of a spiritual walk with the Lord, right? And so, and so we cannot experience a true Christian life without this gift of prayer. Corey Ten Boone says this, Any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. What's she saying there? If it, ain't, if it doesn't mean enough to you to pray about it, then don't call it a burden because it ain't, right? And so if it's too small to go to the Lord in prayer, and then it's too small to be called a burden. 
And when we look at Scripture, as we, as we attack this idea of being synced with God, as we look at this idea of prayer, which obviously, necessarily must go beyond three weeks, Scripture addresses prayer with a very common theme. We hear this theme over and over in Scripture of constant prayer. Perpetual prayer. Let me give you some examples. Romans 12, 12. Again, you can write, jot these down and just trust me and then go back to them later. And if I'm wrong, let me know. All right, but Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. If the Lord were to come back today, could the Lord look at your life and could you bear an account of your life and Him say that you have been faithful in the area of prayer. That it is part of the culture of who you are to be faithful in prayer. Example 2, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. So don't be anxious, don't worry. We don't have a problem doing that, do we? Right? Worry just comes naturally. But instead of anxiousness, instead of worry, in everything, in everything, y'all, in everything, with prayer. Perpetually. The moment we tend to worry, we should tend to take it to the Lord in prayer. In example three, 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, as clear as you could possibly state it, pray without ceasing. Now, I don't know about you, but according to these passages of Scripture, the bar is set pretty high as it relates to how we approach prayer. To pray without ceasing, that literally prayer so saturates our life that it is leaking over in everything that we do. Every thought that we think, every action that we participate in, it's leaking out of everywhere and overflowing in our life. This is what God calls us to, is constant prayer. Thirdly, right? So so first, prayer is essential to seeing the power of God in our life. Prayer is essential for everything we do in the Christian life. But number three, prayer is is an essential sinking mechanism for our heart. This is the idea that drives our sermon series for the next three weeks. Prayer is a sinking mechanism of our heart. God. Now, I am not a worship leader, nor do you want me to be, by the way. Uh, I, am the t- I was the typical youth pastor. I could play about three chords on my guitar, right? So I could swoon a girl in college. Um, that was about all that was for. Uh, but I am not a worship leader. And knowing Will and being as close friends with Will as I am, I've learned tricks of the trade as he goes about his life just like he's learned things from me. Maybe not as much, but I don't know if you realize this, but every time worship is being led up here, there is something going on in the heads of these worship pastors, of these worship leaders that you are unaware of. It's something called a click track. Does anybody know what that is? My, the drummer raised their hand last service, so of course he knows. He doesn't always listen to it, but he at least knows. Um, a click track is a metronome, basically. And it goes off in their head constantly. If they're in a song, there is a click track going on. And they even do really undistracting things like saying, 
chorus. Build. Drop out. And I'm thinking the whole time, if I'm up there leading worship with that going on in my head, I am everywhere, son. Like, there's no way. So you have more respect for your worship leaders that they are leading with this going on in their brain. That is an ADHD person's nightmare, by the way. But they are leading worship despite going on and Mr. Rogers telling them what to do with the song, right? Like, so it's a click track. Why do they do it? They do it because many of us have witnessed bands that are not on the same time and the drummer's doing something and the bassist is doing something and the keyboards are doing something and they are nowhere in sync. The idea of a click track is to keep everybody on the same beat. Everybody stays together. And so the idea of that is to challenge him in the area of excellence. That if, if we will stay to this beat, we will be excellent in this area, at least as it relates to the rhythm of the song. And I believe that the same can be said about our walk with the Lord. If prayer is a sinking mechanism, like a click track in our brain, that keeps us in the rhythm of the Spirit... It is obvious when we're no longer operating in that rhythm. Our life looks different, does it not? It's an essential sinking mechanism for our heart. E. Stanley Jones says, prayer is aligning ourselves with the purposes of God. Aligning ourselves, not moving God, moving us. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. We must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Bless God. I pray because I am helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time. It doesn't change God. Hear this. It changes me. And so today we are going to talk about agreeing in prayer, agreeing about me. We need to come to the point where we agree with God about who we are. James 5, 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If we are to experience the power of God, there is a requirement for us. The prayer of a righteous person has power. Are we living lives to the standard of righteousness that God has placed for us. If not, there's a need for confession. And so confession is what we are talking about today. It's turned in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 4. We're going to read the entire chapter. Verse 1 through 4 first. Before we do that, Psalm 32 is is not as popular as another psalm that almost immediately relates to what's going on in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is partnered with Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is notoriously known. It's known by many to be a psalm that David writes immediately after he is confronted with his sin of adultery and murder. Right, He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he hit it and killed her husband Right, because she was pregnant and he had to kill the husband. 
And so he did both of those things. And for a year, David sits on it. Until Nathan comes. In Psalms 51, we have a pleading of David for forgiveness. It is a pleading of God. So Psalm 51 is is immediately in that context. And we're not sure, David's not sure what God is going to do. But he's pleading with him not to remove his spirit. Now remember, David has seen God's spirit be removed from someone before. King Saul. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was placed on people and then it was withdrawn from people at times. Now for us in the New Testament, if we are in Christ, if we have a relationship with him, then his spirit is given to us forever. But David wasn't sure about if God's presence was going to remain and his anointing was going to remain in his life. And so he says in Psalm 51 things like, don't take your spirit from me, cleanse me. And so we wonder what happens in this. And then we find Psalm 32. Psalm 51 is his plead for forgiveness. Psalm 32 is David's praise for forgiveness. He's pleading in 51, but he is praising in 32 because he sees God's forgiveness in our life. Somebody needs to hear this today. Can I tell you, there is not a sin that you have committed or ever will commit or ever will repeatedly commit that God cannot forgive. And if you don't let yourself off the hook, that ain't God, that's you. God is capable of forgiving you, but the enemy would love to keep you in shame and guilt forever. I don't know who that was for. Not in my notes. But David recognized a rupture in his walk with the Lord. A rupture. Listen to Psalm 32, verse 1. A masculine of David... This, they're uncertain of what this means. It's more than likely a musical term, but it's closely associated with the word uh, for wisdom or insight. So this is a wisdom psalm. This is a psalm of wisdom from David, but it's also a, a musical experience. It's to be experienced musically. So a masculine David, an insight of David, listen what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat, as by the heat of the summer, Salah. David is looking back on his sin. He's looking first on his forgiveness. And he's saying, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. The word blessed in Hebrew means something really deep. You ready? Happiness. It just means happiness. Blessed is the man. So, And by the way, in the Greek, when we read the Beatitudes, blessed is the one, blessed is the poor in spirit, it means happy. It means content. And he's saying, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so he's talking about this thing. Listen to what Aristotle said. Aristotle, not a theologian. The opposite, in fact. Not a theologian, but a philosopher. Listen to what he says that I agree with. Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life. It is the whole aim and the end of human existence. What's Aristotle saying? 
He's saying the most important thing to man is to be happy, is to be content. And you know what? I'm inclined to believe him. I'm inclined to agree. David said, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. He wasn't happy. David wasn't happy. Think about who David was. Now, he was the king of Israel. He was a king. He was a loved king. He was a conquering hero. David had made it in this world. But he doesn't say blessed is the man that gets to wear the crown or blessed is the man that gets to boss people around or blessed is the man that has a bunch of wives and concubines. He says blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. You know what he realized? David realized in light of his sin that happiness is not found in results. It's found in relationship. It's not found in what we achieve in success. The world will pitch you that if you get to a certain level, you will be content. My friend, that level does not exist this side of glory through the world. It's not in results, but it's in a relationship. Why was David, what was he saying? David was in misery. The year, now we don't know a whole lot about this other than what we see in Psalm 32. But we tend to think, well, David got off scot-free. For that whole year, nothing was ever addressed. But what do we see of David here? Every day, my heart was being torn out. Every day, I was shriveling up. My bones wasted away. Why? It wasn't because he had achieved everything the world says is important. It's because his relationship with God was ruptured. There was not the closeness that there had been before. And so he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. There's three words used for sin here. The first one is transgression. This is, this is open rebellion, and we know this, right? I, we know, we can relate to this. I can relate to this. As a dad, I can relate to when my kids openly rebel, right? And so he says, blessed is the one whose transgressions, whose open rebellion has been forgiven. Then he says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. This is a familiar word. It's the same word, a similar meaning as the word used for sin in the New Testament. It means missing the mark. Right, And so there is a standard here, and someone who sins is someone who misses the mark. So one who actively participates in rebellion, and one who may even passively be in sin. But then he goes on. He says, the blessed is the one whose sin is covered, and whose iniquity is not counted. The word iniquity literally means what we would think of as a sin nature. It means crookedness. It means that man was broken from go. We were broken from the garden. And so, blessed is the man whose open rebellion is forgiven. Blessed is the man whose, uh, whose sin and failure, failures in life are covered, and blessed is the man whose lifestyle of sin from he was born in is made whole. This is what he says. Blessed is, happiness isn't found in a result, but it's found in a relationship. Why was David happy in Psalm 32? Well, look why he wasn't happy in Psalm 51. He was restored in relationship, and happiness and contentment came through a relationship with God. Church, not everything translates from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but that does. 
God has made a way for you to be in relationship with him. And contentment in this world or the next relies on you being in relationship with him. But because David recounts the misery of his sin, his guilt, right? He, he accounts for the struggle. As it says in your notes, in your bulletin, sin in the life of a believer should cause struggle. Sin in the life of a believer should cause struggle. If, as I have been meeting with people and counseling and holding people accountable for sins in student ministry or whenever, I would typically ask them, hey guys, how, how are you doing in this particular area? How are you doing in your quiet times? How are you doing in the you know, area of lust? How are you doing in whatever I was holding them accountable for? And when it hadn't been a good week, they would always respond with something like this. Man, first their head drops. <laughs> Man, it's been a struggle. Now, as a youth pastor, I know what that means. I interpret that as I have fallen and probably multiple times have I fallen this week to that area, right? To that sin. It's been a struggle and there immediately is conviction. Why? Because if the presence of God, the perfect holy presence of God is within us, and we are harboring sin in our life, this I know about you. You are a person in conflict. Because the holy presence of God cannot abide in, in a body that is, that is in sin, that is walking in sin. right? And so there has to be reconciliation. There has to be something to let this go. And so I, I say it this way, right? Like, if you could do what you're doing in sin for the rest of your life and never have a single earthly consequence, would it still bother you to do it? No consequences. Remove all consequences. Nobody finds out. Nobody ever does anything. Could you do what you do and not be bothered by it? My friend, if that's the case for you, you've got some big issues. You've got major issues. In fact, if you claim to be a child of God, sin in your life must result in struggle. If you're no longer struggling with your sin, then my friend, I highly doubt your relationship with God is intact, is real. Because where God is, there is a difference in our life. Sin in the life of a believer should cause struggle. Number two, let's look at repentance. We've seen the rupture. The relationship with God was, was broken. And so even though David had everything and he never really changed, his socioeconomic status never changed. But his relationship with God certainly did. So he said, man, blessed is the man that experiences this because I've been on both ends of that spectrum. And so what was the solution? Two is the repentance. Psalm chapter 32, beginning in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What does he say? He says, I acknowledge my sin, and I did not cover my iniquity. Right? Literally, the literal translation of that is, I began to list out before God my sins. I listed them. I was specific and I dealt with them all specifically. Not this blanket. Lord, forgive me where we failed you. And forgive me when I'll fail you in the future, right? 
Not this, but I have listed out my sins before you. Listen to verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. For a hiding place, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. Musical refrain. The solution for David to his predicament, the change between being blessed and being miserable was confession. Laying out a list of his sins and turning from those sins. I began to make known to you my sin is the literal translation that we read there. And David didn't try to mitigate the consequences, right? He was found in sin and he didn't try to make things better. My boys will be fighting at the house. And what is jubilant laughter very quickly with one turns into what? (laughs) Right? It's, they've lost it. They've completely lost it. So then I come in with the spoon, right? The wooden spoon. Because whoever's crying, I'm going to make the other one cry. Now, it's not actually my mentality, but that is what's going to happen practically. Uh, I walk in, and one of my kids has hauled off and just punched the other one, or some kicked or whatever, bit, who knows. They have, they have fought. And I immediately look at the one that's not crying, who is big-eyed, And he says to me, Daddy, he hit me first. To which the other one, through his tears, yet says, Yeah, but he scratched me. Look at the blood. Right? What are they doing? They are mitigating their consequences. They are doing everything they can to lessen the load. Because if there's blood, you're not going to get a spanking, right? Not how it works. David doesn't get into this excuse-playing game. Well, you see, she shouldn't have been bathing on the rooftop, right? Like, see, he's not blaming anybody else. He's confessing his sins. He's laying them out. Instead of hiding any part of him, he confesses them openly. Instead of mitigating those consequences, that's what we like to do, right? Well, God, if you wouldn't have done this in my life, I wouldn't have done that, right? Or I can't believe Adam and Eve, right? It's this snake. It's this woman. It's put us in this garden. What did you expect, right? We begin to try to mitigate the consequences. But David's heart was right before God. In fact, it was so right. I mentioned this at the marriage conference. Think about this. What are the Psalms? It is a song book, David wrote a song, not one, but two, about his incredible sin. He wrote a song. He wrote two songs that they sang in corporate worship, more than likely, of David's adultery and murder. Why? Because he was confessing himself to the Lord. He was confessing of his sin. He was turning. He was repenting of his sin. It wasn't that David was operating outside the normal rhythms of the law. You see, nobody knew what was going on in David's heart. Nobody. In fact, even the prophet had to be told by God what was happening so he could go and tell him. The prophet, whose job was to know, didn't even know until God told him. And so nobody knew the consequence. Nobody knew what was going on. David was functioning as normal. He was attending the feasts. He was attending the, the fasts. He was making the sacrifices. 
Religiously, he looked just fine. You can do the right things in your notes. You can do all the right things without being right. Man, you can fake it for a long time. And you can fool me. And you can fool your family. You can fool your friends. But you cannot fool God. This was a problem that God had with Israel as a whole. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 1. Israel found themselves in a similar situation to David over and over and over again. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1 beginning in verse 10. It says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, he wasn't talking to Sodom or Gomorrah. Why? Because they were burnt up. They were gone. He was talking to God's people. Suffice to say, if you're God's people and God begins with calling you Sodom and Gomorrah, you got issues. You've got significant problems. Listen to what he says. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. This is right before they are taken into exile. And he's telling them, I don't like you doing what I have laid out in the Mosaic law for you to do. He tells them, I don't like you doing it. It doesn't please me. It doesn't make me happy. In fact, I hate it. But God, you told us to do these things. Listen to what he says in verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. The problem with Israel is even though they did all the right things, they were drowning in their own sin. David makes mention in verse 6 of the rush of great waters. You know why I believe he makes mention of the rush of great waters? Because David understood what it was like for a year to be drowning in his sin. To be doing everything he could just to keep his head above water. But because he had not confessed, because he had not repented, because he had not made it plain before the Lord, he was drowning in his own religiousness. He was drowning in sin because the relationship with God was ruptured, was gone. And his prayer of confession was his way out. And so rather than finding a hiding place for his sin, a place that he could put his sin locked far away, where people wouldn't know it, rather than doing that, he found his hiding place in the Lord. What does he say? You're my hiding place. I don't have to hide anymore. I'm hidden in you. You hide me. You protect me because I can't do it on my own. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the response. The response. Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go. 
I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and with bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The reason why I've entitled this the response is, do you hear the person change? No longer is David talking about his sin in the third person. Like he's saying, talking about from his perspective. He's not talking about looking back at his sin and restoration. He is now talking for God. Here's what I believe to be true about this. The reason why this shift happens, this transition happens, is I believe either one, Nathan communicated these exact words to him, which was the common practice in the day that God spoke to the prophets and then came to the fathers, came to David, came to the kings. Or God directly spoke this to his life. Either way, this is God, God's response to David's repentance. This is awesome. This is insight. This is into the, the mind of God as we finally quit playing games, quit hiding away, and we find all of our solace and our strength in God. I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you with my eye on you. I'm not going to remove my spirit from you. I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to lead you But in the future, don't be like a horse or a mule. My good friend Larry Brzezette, who's listening online, I hope anyway, pretty sure, gave me this bridle for me to use as an illustration. I'm going to be honest with you, I've had a lot of things in my hands that I understand. This one I don't as much, okay? Okay. So I'm just going to say that. So there's going to be some things that may be wrong, and all of you equestrian folks can remind me, uh, can let me know later all the error of my way. But this is how I think that a bridal system works. I don't know what type it is, so don't ask. I have no idea. All right? It was literally hung in his, on his porch, and I picked it up. All right? So the head goes into this, and I would show you an illustration you know, somebody that has, you know, a horse's head, but, but Will's not here today, so I'm just kidding. Um, but the, whor- the, the, the horse's head goes in here, donkey's head goes in here, right? And then they have the most important part of a bridle is the bit. Now, the bit is the piece of metal that goes within the mouth of the horse or the donkey. And it goes behind the teeth, sits behind the teeth on the gums of the animal. Now, the God has made this animal, as he's made most animals, with a natural inclination not to be in pain. And so when the animal feels a tug or pressure on his gums, he tends to turn toward it, right? So if I'm on a horse and I have the reins in my hand, in my left hand, I have the left rein, right hand, right rein. Maybe you can do it with one hand, I don't know. But if you tug to the left... There's pressure that's put on the left side of the animal's mouth. And to alleviate that pressure, he turns. That's how a bit works. That's how a bridle works. If you want to turn to the right, you put pressure on the right. And it's not 
very uncomfortable for the animal, but there is a certain level of discomfort. Now, when that animal gets out of control, that discomfort turns into, can turn into pain at times. But a bridle is meant to keep a horse in line. Now, when God says don't be like a horse or a mule, he's saying that you've got some brain function higher than that of some beast. He's saying your job in life is not to do whatever you want to do until there's a certain amount of pain that's put in your life so that you eventually yield to the pain. This is not God's design for me, and it's not God's design for you. God doesn't desire to use consequences in our life to direct us one way or another. Now, he did in David's life, and he can in your life. There are consequences for the things that we go through. And just because God forgives does not always mean that there's not consequences, right? And so sometimes these things exist. But the idea is don't be this animal that has this conditioning of pain. Be someone who walks in relationship with me. Let me lead you. Let me guide you. Would you just walk beside me? Quit wandering to the right or to the left. You're more than some horse or some mule. Walk in partnership with me. This is God's response to David's plea for forgiveness. Be in relationship with me. Walk in the same rhythm that I walk. Keep your records of sin close and clean to me. Keep them short. Confess those sins. Don't make me get the bit or the bridle out. Walk with me. And when you see me move, when you walk in step with me, when you align yourself with me, then there's no need for pain. There's no need for these consequences. I have better in store for you. While obedience is to God, it is for us. Sure, we're obedient to God, right? We, we are obedient to that standard. But it is not for God. Listen, y'all, God doesn't, God, it, does, it doesn't matter. As far as God is concerned, he is still God whether you obey him or not. It has no bearing on God. You have not lessened or diminished him in any way to be disobedient. But boy, you have made a ton of difference in your life. So David says, and you want some wisdom? Here's, here's my wisdom psalm to you. Don't be a horse or a mule. Walk in step with me. Because obedience is to God, but it's for us. Guilt, sorrow, and pain, according to the last verse there, verse 11, or excuse me, 10 and 11. Guilt, sorrow, and pain are the result of a lifestyle of sin. Peace, love, and joy are the result of obedience. And y'all, if we are going to believe that God is going to use us to make a difference in this community, to make a difference in Elkmont or West Limestone or Ardmore or Athens or wherever it is that we find ourselves, if we believe that, then we must walk in step with Him, in sync aligning ourselves. So we have to do business with God.
today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? As we enter our time of invitation. Our sin must be dealt with. So that we can be effective in our walk for others. And so if you're here and there's sin and it's in your life, I want you to know that God loves you despite of that sin. And yeah, you you may have been a horse or a mule at times, but God loves you. Gave his son to die for you so that you could be in sync, in step with him. And so if you've never confessed your sins to the Lord, the Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe you need to do business with God. Maybe you need to confess your sins for the first time and surrender your life to a relationship with no better preparation for what God is going to do through you than what God could do in you today. So maybe you need to respond in obedience to Him in salvation. Maybe you're here and maybe there's some things that you need to deal with. Maybe there's other decisions that you need to make. Maybe like Ansley, you need to follow the Lord of Believers' baptism. Maybe you know you're a child of God, but you've never made your baptism public. Maybe you need to do just that. Maybe you need to join what's going on here at Lindsay Lane North. Or maybe you just need to do business with God. Now, I'm convinced of this. COVID has kept us from this altar for long enough. I want you to know, from now on, our invitations are open. With this emphasis of prayer, we felt God leading us to open up the altar. But if you, if you need to pray about anything, now I know God can meet you right where you are. You can make your altar your seat. But if you desire to do business with the Lord here at this altar, maybe it's a sin that you need to confess. Maybe you need to lay it out as David did before the Lord. Or maybe it's someone that you need to pray for that you, God is calling you to reach and to minister to, maybe to bring to these, this Easter service coming up. Whatever it is, whatever the need, I want you to know this altar is open. Our invitation is open. There will be a time of response today. Whatever you need to do, I pray that you would use this invitation, the drawing of God in your life to do it. Father, we love you and we thank you for for your invitation to us to respond to you. God, we love you and God, let us be obedient to you. In these next few moments, let us allow